Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Homebrew All-Stars, where we pick the brains of 25 of the world's best homebrewers and bring them your tips, tricks, and secrets, and give them straight to you. Between the two of us, we have nearly 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for strange beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out. Well, on today's episode, we start, as always, with your feedback. And before we head into the pub to go handle some beer news, including a new Trappist, some interesting shakeups in terms of financial decisions that people are making in the brewing industry, uh, well, and an interesting note from ABI about homebrewing. Before we go off to the to the library where we're going to talk about a recent release of recipes and into the brewery to talk about a brand new style and why some people seem to be getting confused about what it is and exactly how I'm going to go make it. Uh, and then in the, in the lab, we got a little bit of a tease, you know, just a little proto-science ahead of time. And before we head out to New Zealand once more for another, well, another round of interviews, including a live one here in Oregon with Denny's, well, special someone. That's right. And then, of course, as always, you know, we're going to give you a quick tip and something other than beer before we get you on your way. And speaking of getting you on your way, what have we got to do, Denny? We're going to take a quick break here so you can listen to a word from some of our sponsors, and we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by the American Homebrewers Association, organizers of Big Brew for National Homebrew Day, probably the most important holiday of the year. This May 5th, the AHA invites you to gather with your homebrewing friends, fire up the kettle, and celebrate the hobby we all love. To find a Big Brew event near you, or to promote your own celebration, visit the AHA website at homebrewersassociation.org and select events. And by you, our listeners, go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. Time to get this show on the road. So we're going to start off with a few announcements. The first of which is that uh, episode 34 of the Brew Files was just released, Getting Cool with Kip. And uh, Drew, you talked to uh, Kip about his cool ship? Yeah, I talked to uh, Kip Barnes of the LA Ale Works down in Hawthorne, California, about you know, you know some of the stuff that he's doing in the, the brewery. He's a longtime home brewer turned pro. He made that mistake. <laughs> and he keeps trying to be playful. And so one of the things they did was he actually is now engaged in an experiment of what happens if you use a cool ship uh, less than a mile away from a freeway and a major international airport. <laughs> and it works, huh? It works. And we even talk about w what we think we would do if we were trying to replicate what he was doing at the homebrew level. So all in all, I always like talking with Kip. He's been one of my oldest friends in the beer world. So it's kind of cool to see him up and running his place and also talk about what he's doing there. 
Of course, our next announcement is we have a party. Party, yes. party, party. It's party time at HomebrewCon in Portland. Wednesday, the 27th of June, starting at 6.30 p.m., our friends at Brewcraft have asked us to come along and kind of like MC the party for them. Uh, it's a free admission, but there are raffle tickets you can buy to win cool stuff. Drew and I will be introducing new products throughout the evening, so you can uh, take a look at some of the cool new stuff coming your way from Brewcraft. Lots of great beers, some collaborations. Uh, Breakside will be having a beer there. It's going to be a really fun evening. Oh, yeah, and I can't wait. I'm even going to bust out some trivia and give away some prizes based on trivia. So be prepared. I might hurt your brain. <laughs> you hurt my brain all the time, man. It's my job. That's right, right, and you do it well. So now don't forget that you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. You can click the Amazon AHA or BYO links on the website and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... It's Habitat for Humanity, and what a great organization this is. They don't just build homes for people. They help people build their own homes. They're in cities all over the U.S. You can get involved helping them build but if you don't have time or energy to do that, you can get involved by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com, clicking on the Patreon link and donating whatever amount you feel like. And we'll pass it along to Habitat for Humanity and say a big thank you to you for helping out. Well, you know what time it is? It's time to always get this party started the way that we always get this party started. And that means it's time for Feedback. feedback. And Denny, why don't you take the first piece of feedback? All righty. Our first piece of feedback comes from Jeff Hardgrove, who starts off, Denny and Drew, like you, I find myself giving Duval a pass from the evil corporate overlord moniker when it comes to macro beer practices these days. I can't help but wonder if we're being hypocritical. The notion you mentioned recently about Duval staying hands-off for the most part is comforting, but one could argue that Wicked Weed hasn't fundamentally changed that from AB InBev, nor Lagunitas from Heineken, etc. The main concern I've always had with this trend does seem to apply here, and that is the competition for tap handles and shelf space. You can now stock a tap list or bottle shop with beers that are solely from the big guys, and I'd argue that most craft beer drinkers wouldn't even realize that these are not independent breweries keeping in mind that the listeners of this podcast are a cut above the average craft beer drinker, and thus not a representative sample. Filling tap lists and store shelves through the mighty distribution powers of big beer mean that the local independent brewer has that much harder a time expanding beyond his tap room. That is the true loss, in my opinion. Is Duval not just as guilty of this as others? Please help rectify this hypocrisy. Thanks. Well, Jeff, here's the way I see it. Like you, my concern with these is not the, the beer itself as much as it is the distribution practices of the people who have been buying up some of these uh, craft breweries and stuff. I've seen no real indication of that with Duval, and I guess if I did, at least to the extent that, uh, that ABI is doing it, then I would have to denounce them also. I, I can tell you that from my point of view, it's a plus because I can now find four packs of Duval in my local grocery store for a very reasonable price, and that I like. Now, if I was to find out that they're cutting out local beers and limiting my choice to get the Duval in there, I think I'd have to think differently of it. Uh, you got any real facts about this, Drew? Uh, 
Well, the primary fact I, uh, that I have is one big difference between Duval and, say, ABI is that, one, Duval doesn't have anywhere near the 800-pound gorilla uh, sort of weight that it can sling around like ABI does in terms of, like, getting its distributors to do different things. Remember, for a lot of distributors, you know, they're either a Miller house or they're an ABI house, and that pretty much kind of means those guys are making up, say, 80 to 90% of their revenue, which gives them a lot of power. There's a reason why ABI has been famous over the years for doing their, you know, their sort of brand purity exercises where they reward distributors with extra money or, uh, you know, gear or write-offs or whatnot based on the amount of ABI branded products that they sell. So Duval doesn't quite have that power, that strength. And also Duval doesn't actually own any distributorships. So uh, I think that's a real big difference. And, you know, Really, truthfully, I think even even with the, what is it now, 10, 11 breweries that Duval now owns, mm-hmm. there's still a relatively minor force in the world of a beer, even if they do own uh, Firestone and, and Omegang and Boulevard. So, yeah, yeah, they just don't have the weight to throw around like ABI does, and they, they certainly don't seem to have any of the anti-competitive uh, practices that ABI does. Right. So that's why I can give them a pass and still enjoy Duval in good conscience. All right. Well, so on from uh, on from the world of big beer and what it's doing and on to the world of little beer and what people are doing for their brewers resolutions. So we got a message from uh, Laurel Vahagan, who wrote in during the uh, brewers resolutions uh, episode about what she was going to do for uh, making uh, her brewers resolutions. And amongst them, there was a a a qualification in there where she said, I'm going to do 15 plus brew days with a couple of different things. And one of the things that she was going to do was to try and dial in a triple recipe by April for an intra club competition that she was taking part in. So Laurel wrote back in to say, you know, to thank us for including the brew year's resolution on the podcast. And she wanted to provide a quick update. And so they actually put it into the growler uh, for the golden growler invitational and the initial brew was actually done all the way back in September, and it was a fairly simple recipe, some uh, Pilsner malt and Vienna malt and some white sugar with a little bit of hopping to just kind of you know, get it kind of in there at 31 IBUs and a 1081 gravity. And they did a three-way split on the yeast, uh, Mangrove Jack M31 from a grisette, a BE256 uh, dry yeast, and then a white yeast 3787 that they didn't make a starter for and became a huge mistake. Because they said when they looked at the final gravities, all the other ones, the M31 and B256, were down almost completely fermented out at like 100 or 1002. The 3787 without the starter finished up around 1018. Whoops. But <laughs> yeah. Laurel gave us a bunch of really great notes here, uh, basically about all the different things. The BE256 apparently was the winner of the dry yeast. Uh, they entered that into the Minnesota mash out. Uh, they did both uh, both versions of that, and uh, the 256 and M31 version both went to the mini best of show with the M31, the Mangrove Jack, taking the gold medal in the category. Uh, they rebrewed in January with just a few little tweaks, basically to up the attenuation. Uh, up the attenuation, the original gravity still at about 1080. They played around with the the water ratio to kind of uh, make it a little bit uh, more sulfate and less chloride because they they felt like the first version had too much malt in it. And so they did a four-way split, the, the M31 again, 1388 with the starter, 3787 with the wort from the previous, uh, from an existing three-gallon batch, and then T58, you know, as a last-minute kind of choice. All of them fermented out fairly well, except for the T58, which came at a 1012. And so for this Golden Growler competition, they said the club had five other entries from three brewers. We entered uh, the M31, the 1388, and the 3787. 
got full score sheets and BOS discussions going. And the 3787 apparently was quickly eliminated. Uh, too sweet, too fermentation flaws. 1388 was too clean. And they advanced the M31 and 1388. And along with a triple made with orange blossom honey, which actually ended up taking first, the M31 took second, and the 1388 took ninth, which meant that their club won the traveling trophy in this competition. So, hey, I think that's uh, that's pretty good. And, and Laurel was thanking us for uh, all of our ideas and suggestions. And so congratulations to the uh, Marshfield Area Society of Homebrews, a.k.a. MASH, in Marshfield, Wisconsin, for winning the uh, the, the trophy there. Really good on you guys and good on you for experimenting too. That's uh, really cool. Yeah. Yeast flavor experiments are always one of my favorites as is obvious from, or as is evidenced by the fact that I'm still making different saisons. (laughs) Yes, he is. Okay. Enough of this stuff. Let's head over to the pub and have a beer. Shall we? Okay. Okay. He wasn't hard to convince, was he? Stick around. We're going to hear a message from one of our sponsors and we'll be right back and meet you at the pub. YCH Hops is a grower-owned global hop company located in the Pacific Northwest with a mission to connect family hop farms with the world's finest brewers. YCH Hops is thrilled about the release of their newest product, Cryo Hops, to both commercial and home brewers, providing intense hop flavor and aroma, reduced vegetal flavors, and increased yield. Visit YCHHops.com to find a homebrew retail store near you. sitting here in the experimental brewing pub at the corner of everywhere and nowhere in your town usa and we are having a couple beers what you got there today drew well one of my favorite local breweries i'm hoping to get them up on the show before too long is highland park brewing company and for years they've been operating out of the back vip room of the hermosillo bar and pulling their brewery out into the driveway and parking lot of the bar to do their brews on about a three barrel system they have just recently opened up a brand new production facility and, you know, brew puppy type space in Chinatown here in L.A. And so I'm very, very happy to see them do that. Bob is the head brewer there and he's great. So I am having his High Hopes Pale Ale, which is a hoppy pale ale with all the usual sorts of goodies that people are doing these days. So Mosaic and Amarillo and Simcoe. And then also with the addition of Seville oranges to it. And, you know, kind of just a nice big pale ale at 6.3% with a lot of fresh fruit type flavors. Now, are Seville oranges uh, sour? Yeah, they're yeah they're, they're the more bitter oranges. Right, that's what I thought. That's what I thought. Sounds like an interesting beer, man. Well, and I, and I can tell you, I think, I suspect I know where that beer comes from because Bob used to be a brewer at Craftsman Brewing, which is famous for their Orange Grove Pale Ale. Aha, uh-huh. yeah, there you go. Well, I'm having a beer from one of my favorite breweries, North Coast. It's a, a brewery that I don't frequent as often as I used to uh, because I used to drink so much of their beer that I kind of burned out. 
But I was walking through the store the other day, and I saw their prankster sitting there, a wonderful, delicious Belgian ale, a little bit like uh, like Le Chouf, uh, kind of has that Ardennes yeast flavor to it, although not exactly, just a, a really nice beer. It's dry, but still has a, a nice mouthfeel to it so that you don't feel like you're drinking water. Uh, highly recommended. Find it. Have yourself one. No, I was going to ask, have they have they gone to kind of a more Belgian yeast? Because I remember when that beer first got released, it, it felt almost like a hot fermented American ale strain. And it, I wasn't a huge fan of it originally. Yeah, it, it's definitely more Belgian-y, or at least it's Belgian-y enough for me. Like I said, it it kind of reminds me of a cross between something that would be using Ardennes yeast and, and Westmall yeast, you know? Uh, but it's, you know, I, I'd say go get yourself another one, man. See what you think these days. Okay. Uh, I can be convinced. <laughs> if it involves drinking beer, Drew's up for experimentation. Hey, why not? And speaking of drinking beer, in order to drink beer, you got to brew beer first. So, Denny, you have a, you have something about brewing. Yeah, I do. Uh, March 18th was the 20th anniversary of the first time I ever homebrewed. And uh, I didn't actually manage to brew on that day, but I brewed batch number 527 real close to it a couple days later. So uh, there, now, it's, now it's been an official 20 years for me, so we may have to update our opening. So in other words, that means that you've done 26.3 brews, 26.4 brews per year since you started brewing. Yeah, and mo- most of that was uh, in the first, say, 15 years. The last five years, I've been too busy to brew as much as I want to, but I swear that, uh, that I'm going to be changing that. The American Mild has been in the fermenter for a week, and today it gets its gravity check and taste test. Yeah, I'm super excited. I just racked all the beers that I brewed on my Gonzo Brew Day a couple weeks ago and getting ready to do another one. Yeah, man. You know, yeah. And if we uh, if we ever clear up our schedules, we'll be doing a lot more brewing. Yeah, won't that be nice? All right. <laughs> so now, last episode, we talked about Green Flash and their various problems and how quickly they went from, hey, we're closing our Virginia Beach brewery to, oh, my God, we've been sold to private equity. <laughs> In other words, about a week. Right. And interesting news was coming out just as we're recording this episode that Deschutes Brewing Company out of Bend, Oregon, which has been a reliable, you know, good old standby brewery for uh, forever and ever, uh, they had been planning to expand to Roanoke, Virginia, and they've put that plan on hold. So I kind of thought that was interesting and somewhat indicative of, I think maybe people are starting to pay attention in the market and go, uh, wait a minute, maybe we don't need to expand. Yeah, you know what? I would say that uh, basically it's really what we're seeing over and over again is that people are taking a look at the state of the market and saying, well, you know, maybe things aren't going to continue meteorically like they were before. Yeah, so maybe this is... Maybe this is time that we're seeing some people put on this, uh, the brakes to, to stop the expansion. Now, I also saw something where somebody was talking about, hey, you know, Colorado had more brewery closings last year than it's had, you know, in a good long while. But also still, there are more breweries opening than ones that are closing. So the growth is still there. It's just now people are starting to shake out of the industry, which is something that we always expected. And I can tell you from, you know, personal conversations that I've had that I know at least a couple of, you know, relatively well-established breweries that have essentially said that at least for this year 
their capital expenditure, aka the stuff they're going to spend on like big expansion and big equipment and all that, they've set that to zero. They're not they're not going to spend any capital this year and just kind of hold steady. So I think I think maybe people are starting to pay attention and go, well, maybe we play it safe right now. You know, and I think that that's true. Although here in Eugene, it seems to be the opposite. There have been uh, a few breweries here that have been expanding. Uh, one went into a new location and opened up like a, a brew pub kind of facility. Uh, and, you know, so that they've got food and beer there. Yeah, well, um, I'm, still seeing, I'm still seeing smaller places expand. And I'm still seeing like, you know, some smaller places start to open up satellite locations. But I think what we're going to, I think what we're seeing is like any of the, any of the people who've grown up to a certain, you know, size, say, you know, 20,000 plus barrels per year. I think they're all kind of stopping and going, okay, wait a second. That's enough for now. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah. Probably, probably a smart move until the market uh, really shows where it's going, huh? Yeah. So what do you guys think? Are you seeing any of this sort of change in your neighborhood? Are you seeing more breweries closing than you expected? Or are you seeing more breweries still opening? I think I think we're like I said before. I think we're at the place where the local brewery is almost like the local pizza shop. Yep. So. Yep. Now going from uh, the, that sort of thing to well, you know, our favorite people in the world, AB InBev. Uh, <laughs> there was an interesting article published in Beverage Daily about how AB InBev saying we see homebrewing as a natural expansion of craft brewing. And uh, Denny, did you? Uh, what do you think of this? So obviously, this comes from the folks at ZX Ventures. Yeah, which right. is the, the people who uh, uh, purchased, you know, Northern Brewer a few years back. And they actually go pretty deep into it about it. Remember in 2016, when that news was announced, I think all of us went, huh? Why, why would you do that? It was pretty obvious back then. And it's, it's even more obvious now. Craft beer drinkers, to a large extent, are home brewers or vice versa. Uh, home brewers are craft beer drinkers. So uh, why not try and get as much of the market as you can? I, I got to tell you, I don't see this as anything earth shattering in terms of being a surprise. Um, and I, I just, you know, I have a hard time being outraged about it. Well, I'm, I'm not outraged about it. I'm, I'm just very confused about it. I mean, what I thought was interesting was, so there's some quotes in here. It says that nearly every craft beer that's popular today began with a homebrew. We aim to make homebrewing as popular and easy as cooking because it offers up one more avenue for people to fall in love with beer. And that's ultimately what we're about, making great beer experiences. And the interesting part that I hadn't really paid much attention to was, so, okay, they bought Northern Brewer to be sort of the, the center of their, their homebrewing business. And they are apparently expanding its operations into other parts of the world, including the UK, France, Argentina, Brazil, and other parts of Europe as well. So they're, you know, it seems like they're, they're really pushing forward with that strategy to kind of go, you know, broader. And of course, from our experience going overseas to other countries, you know, a lot of the problems for a lot of homebrewers in other countries is access to ingredients. So this is an interesting thing. Yeah, it really is. To me, it's interesting because they seem to be pushing homebrewing as a way to get people interested in craft beer and then hopefully they will go out and buy some of the craft beer that uh, AB InBev is marketing. It's really a a dichotomy for me because while I hate to encourage AB InBev's predatory business practices, on the other hand, I do like to see the expansion of homebrewing. Me too, but if you have it available to, shop local. 
<laughs> always, always, man. As with anything, uh, shopping local is the way to go if you can. Yeah, it, it, but it was just an interesting article to see, but uh, it's still very hard for me to see what the long-term strategy is. I mean, I guess other than what you said, you know, like, hey, get more people into beer so there's more people to buy beer. Yeah, right, right. Okay, next story. There is a new Trappist brewery, and it's not where you would think it might be. Yeah, so I don't know about you guys, but I started to lose track because for years and years, it always felt like, you know, hey, there are seven Trappist breweries, and they're all in Belgium. And then now, and then you got La Trappe coming back in, and they're in the Netherlands. And then you got one in Germany, and then you got one in the U.S. And now there's, uh, what, there's one in uh, Italy. And, uh, man, where else we got? Uh, uh, France, U.S., uh, yeah, uh, Netherlands, and Italy. And now... The UK. That's right. So apparently the ITA, the International uh, Trappist Association, has uh, has officially licensed the Mount St. Bernard Abbey in Leicestershire. They have one beer, and it's 7%, which, you know, stop and think about that in terms of, you know, sort of typical British or, say, New Zealand alcohol levels. 7% is huge, and they're working out of a 17-barrel brewery. They've got, um, you know... Yeah, they're just this whole thing, and of course their motto is yeah, uh, pray and work, or at labor, or at labora, uh, and you know. So this is just kind of interesting to see that now there is a UK brewery uh, in the Trappist world, and I'm starting to lose track. And dang it, I need to expand my glassware collection again. <laughs> I still one don't the, have it to cover all of them. One of the cool things mentioned in this article is that they actually uh, tested their recipes by making twenty liter slash five gallon batches. Uh, so basically, they kind of like came up with these as homebrew recipes and, and moved them into production. Yeah, and, and of course, also, what's nice is, as has been the case with all these other Trappist breweries, you know, they're getting a lot of support from the other breweries themselves, you know, so a lot of knowledge being shared. Right, which is the way it should be, man. That's what beer is about. Yep, so there you go. We've got 12 12 Trappist, or 12 Trappist breweries now, so eight in Belgium and Netherlands, and then Austria, U.S., and Italy. Boy. Wow. Wow. Time for a trip, huh? Yep. I got I, I to gotta get those other glasses. I've got all the Belgians, and I got the Netherlands. <laughs> now I need the Italian, the, the Austrian, and, and the U.S., and now the British one. Dang it. We're hoping to get to Netherlands and Belgium next year, so uh, keeping my fingers crossed for that. Yeah. Take me with you. All right. <laughs> I've got a big suitcase, man. If you lose a little bit more weight, maybe it'll work. All right. There we go. And then uh, last but not least, also in the sort of realm of uh, growing lists of independent brewer type things, uh, the Brewers Association actually did a, kind of a cool thing where they released the what the top 50 growing independent brewers in the U.S. currently. And I know that you had one in your area. I have one in my area. It was kind of interesting to see because it wouldn't exactly be the breweries that I would have thought. Yeah, right. Um, I was kind of surprised by the one here in Oregon, Draper Brewing, about 60 miles south of here near Roseburg. I got into their beer when they first started. I was introduced to it by my friend Diane, who lives down there. Um, and those guys have been making killer beer since the day they started. It's pretty interesting to see them as the sixth fastest growing brewery in the United States now. And... Uh, that what I gather from reading the article is that the uh, the owner was pretty surprised too. Well, hey, you know, it's it's good to see you know just basically like there we go. And yeah, I mean, yeah, these were right. people who reported 
these were people who reported their growth via you know a BA survey and whatnot. So you know, obviously it's it's an incomplete list, uh, but it is from people who responded. And for me, the one that was surprising to me was uh, Pacific Plate Brewing Company over in Monrovia, California, was uh, number twenty six in that list uh, in terms of growth. Uh, the episode where we had the so-called Sufferceros on, uh, I was actually interviewing them literally next door to Pacific Plate. So, <laughs> and I know they've built a, a fairly large reputation on the basis of their uh, horchata stout, which is actually a really nice stout. So uh, there you go. Kind of cool to see. Wow, is there... horchata stout. That's an interesting concept. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, so, guys, is there one of these breweries near you? Maybe you should go check it out and see whether or not you think uh, they deserve to be one of the fastest growing breweries in America. All right, time to get out of here. Let's go over to the library. Yes, indeed. Let's finish up these beers and head over to the library for a little info about some homebrew recipes that are available to all of us. Stick around. We're going to be right back. Are you a fan of chocolate, but not of the mess that comes from using cacao nibs? Chalaka is your answer. A favorite of Tim Matthews at Oscar Blues, it contains only cacao and water. Chalaka is aseptically packaged, so you don't have to worry about any bugs coming along uninvited. Using only sustainably sourced cacao, every bottle of Chalaka you buy helps regrow the rainforests of Ecuador and Peru. Ask for Chalaka wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. in the library surrounded by stacks of books and we're going to talk about how jester king brewing which is in austin has released some of their recipes for home brewers yeah and i mean if you don't know jester king they are a fantastic and funky little brewery that you know they do pretty much all of their beers except for their spontaneous series with a mixed culture of yeast and bacteria and which lends to some wildly unpredictable flavors, but always an interesting experience. And I thought this was just rather neat. They they released what was it seven recipes? Yeah. Uh, so seven recipes from uh, from their past, uh, and you know just really cool. Everything from like their beer de mel, which they have uh, with Texas wildflower honey. They've got one of the beers in here that I know will absolutely be Denny's favorite, the uh, Noble King. Which, yeah, has 26 IBUs, but it has a buttload of EKG and Fuggles. Uh, EKG, okay. Fuggles, uh, it's cheaper to just add dirt to your beer. Yeah. So, and then, of course, I think the the last one in the list that's really interesting is their uh, snorkel with oyster mushrooms and smoked sea salt. So, and these are are some very playful recipes and kind of interesting to see uh, particularly what they're using and some of the thought process behind it. And also to look at, I mean, most of these beers are not very, very large. And that's one of the things that you can, you can do when you're using mixed cultures is you can derive a lot of character from the cultures that you're using. So I think uh, they also go into, okay, look, if you don't have, uh, if you don't have our culture, which you don't, uh, then a couple of ways that you can go and they suggest, you know, going and finding one of their smaller beers that's relatively fresh and doing a bottle culture from that. And if you're worried about doing that, then go and pitch something like, uh, a saison strain 
and then pitch bottle dregs into the secondary. So you start to grow up some of it. And then over time, you can keep using that and and hopefully get even closer to the Jester King culture or at the very least get to some sort of mix that's uniquely yours that is special. It's it's worth a try if you're the experimental type, and I assume you probably are if you're listening to this. Uh, check out the recipes. See if you can get yourself a bottle of Jester King to uh, use the dregs and enjoy the beer and uh, see what you come up with. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's just, if nothing else, it's interesting to see just to just to witness the thought process or the final result of the thought process that these guys are going through. Yep, exactly. All right. Well, I think that's a quick read. Yep. And we'll put that link on our website so you can go grab these Jester King recipes and either brew them yourself or at least get some ideas for your own brew. But we're going to take a break now while we head over to the brewery. And when we come back, we'll be talking about Brute IPA. And that's not uh, referring to Drew's big muscles. Stick around. We're going to be right back. Why Yeast Goes Rustic for this year's private collection spring release. Europe has long been exalted as the world's heart of brewing tradition, and it couldn't be truer today as styles like Berliner Weiss and Goza of Germany are being revived through the passion of home and professional craft brewers. Belgian styles have become the flagship beers of breweries all around the globe and continue to be the holy grail of mastery and sought-after beers. A lot of the flavor of these styles comes from the yeast and bacteria that have shaped the flavors of these regions into centuries of fine beer. Weist is proud to bring our Berliner Weisse blend, Belgian Schelde Ale, and Britannomyces Clausenii to you in this European-inspired selection. These strains are available April through July at your local homebrew shop. Find out more about which styles pair best with these strains at yeastlab.com. for joining us here in the brewery where we've got the shining stainless steel and the burners going we're going to talk about a new type of beer that started making its appearance and it's kind of the antithesis of the new england ipa this is a very hoppy very dry style of ipa which quite frankly sounds more appealing to me and it's it's kind of like something you've done before huh well, okay, so that's the thing I want to address. So this new style that is, you know, people are crediting to uh, Kim, I think it's uh, Kim Studevant uh, from Social Kitchen in San Francisco. They call it their Brute IPA or their Hop Champagne is the name of the beer. And this Brute IPA has now apparently been spreading around San Francisco for the past couple of months. And, you know, people like Drake's are doing it and a few others. And... The real crux of it is that you know, a lot of people are getting confused about the brute term and coming talking to talking to me about it and saying, oh, Drew's already done this thing years ago. No, I haven't. So here's the thing. Brute is simply a French term that's usually used in winemaking for dry. All right. So you'll also see terms like uh, sec and demi-sec for sweet and semi-sweet. But the only time most Americans ever hear the term brute is in terms of champagne. 
So that's the reason why people are thinking, oh, this must be related to the champagne beers that have been done in Belgium for you know at least a decade now. And the answer is no, they're not. Uh, so the champagne beers of Belgium or the brute beers of Belgium are all done with method champenoise. There is nothing method champenoise about this beer. So that out of the way, it still actually sounds like a really interesting beer. And I am actually putting one in the brew kettle tomorrow to play with. Uh, but I will give you guys a couple outlines and notes uh, that are in there. So like I said, this originated in the social kitchen with uh, their beer called Hop Champagne. And interesting to see, Social Kitchen, I think, is the first brewery to work for a long period of time in that same space. There's been about four breweries over, I think, about 15 years in that space, and this one's actually lasted. So they're doing something right. Uh, The recipe that Kim did was basically pills, malt, and corn at a 70 to 30% ratio. Came in at about 6.7 ABV with only 25 IBUs of, of actual bitterness. Now, Focused on low IBUs, but with high oil modern hops. So your citras, your mosaics, your galaxies, all those like, right? Anything that drops a lot of oil, but not necessarily a lot of bitterness if you don't use it early. Uh, Now, here's the real trick. So if we think of a hazy IPA, hazy IPA has that, you know, sort of rich enveloping mouthfeel, you know, all those hop oils floating around there giving some uh, pithy bitterness. They... Yeah, it, it's sort of a, a sweeter experience in some cases, which is part of the thing that plays into that juice character. The Brute IPA goes in the exact opposite direction. They actually use it driving an enzyme, a glucoamylase enzyme, which is different than what you would get from Bino. Bino is a galactodase or something like that. Something like that. It's a different thing. Don't use Bino. Uh, in this case, the Social Kitchen is getting it from a product from BSG called Amylo 300. There is on the homebrew level a an enzyme called UltraFirm or WLN4100 from White Labs. And that's actually what I'm going to use. Now, what Social Kitchen does with it and what I'm going to do with it for at least my first experiment is they wait for the beer to ferment out. They harvest their yeast and then they add the amylo enzyme into the fermenter and allow it to go to work. Now, here's the thing about these enzymes is they're pretty much like the Terminator. Once you introduce them to the environment, they're not going to stop until they, they kill everything. And what they're doing is they're going through and taking any of the longer chain sugars and starches that are remaining in the beer and slowly converting them into simple sugars that can then be picked up by the yeast, right? And so the idea is over a period of time, and I don't know how much time just yet, I'm going to imagine a couple of weeks, your beer's original uh, final gravity will eventually drop down to, say, 10000 or possibly below, depending upon how much it can take out. Right. And so what you end up with is something that is very, very dry or very, very brute. And then they, they carbonate it. They force carbonate it up to a nice, you know, high level of, uh, of carbonation, but still not doing methos champenoise. So that's the reason why I think the champagne term confuses everybody. So the end goal is to get something that is essentially very, very pale, very, very dry and very hot flavorful, but not with a lot of hot bitterness, right? Because they're stripping away as much of the residual sweetness as they can, you can't really drive a lot of bite. So I really, when I stop and I take a look back or I take a step back and I look at like what this is, in a lot of ways, this is, hey, somebody went and took the same idea that we use for making American light lockers and bumped up the gravity a little bit and bumped up the hopping a whole hell of a lot. Because Bud Light and those guys, they do get their sort of light character from using additional mash enzymes to, you know, take out the more complex carbs. 
And so they're doing the exact same thing here. They're just doing it in service of doing something hoppy. Uh, now, of course, the thing I just said there, Social Kitchen is doing their enzyme addition post-fermentation so they don't mess with their yeast cakes. Most of the time when you use these sorts of enzymes, it actually goes into the mash. And so one of the things I want to play with is I want to do it in both both methods to see if there is really a difference between adding it post-fermentation or if there's a, a difference in adding it in the mash. And you know, maybe also do the same recipe again without doing the enzymes and see if people can really tell the difference between the three. You know, man, to me, it sounds like a really intriguing style, and I'm looking forward to giving it a shot. Well, I mean, I think it's interesting. They say don't use, uh, or Kim said in here in an interview that, that we'll include the link to, uh, not to use things like Centennial and Cascade whatnot, because he finds that those still give off grassy characters that really stand out in this style. So that was the reason for the emphasis on the high oil hops. I also suspect there's the thing about, you know, hey, the fruit, uh, the fruit characters. But the one thing that does bug me about this, since this is really just, you know, kind of an American light lager turned into an ale and bumped up in gravity. While this is playful, it's like, why does it seem like everything about American craft brewing uh, playfulness is all around IPA? Everything's about, you know, trying to drive a, uh, or at least to me, everything feels like it's all about trying to drive a new hop experience. So, uh, you know, maybe, uh, definitely I would say that's the case with Northeast IPA. I don't know if that's so much the case with this one, at least not the it's way still, I see it. It's still an IPA. It's still trying sure. to, it's still, it's still primary focus is all about the hops. It's, you know, this is literally about stripping away all of the malt. <laughs> so is, is, is that a problem? No, I'm just wondering when the, uh, when the heck are we ever going to actually do something playful and interesting and different that doesn't involve just changing up and, and re-expressing a hop character? Oh, you mean, you mean something like a Cezanne uh, guacamole? Exactly. Something like a Cezanne <laughs> guacamole. I was going to say, you have that market pretty much cornered, buddy. Yes, I know. And I'm happy to have it. <laughs> okay, we're going to get out of here. We're going to head over to the lab and tell you what we've got coming up in a couple weeks. How's that for... Uh, not really telling you anything. Stick around. We're going to be right back. Mecca Grade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their eighth generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve MechaGrade. For more information, please visit MechaGrade.com. made our way over to the lab the bunsen burners are going the jacob's ladder is going but drew's not doing his imitation today and we have just started getting some results in from our latest experiment which was a comparison of using t90 and cryo hops in the same beer and uh, you know we had just gotten these results in we were going to put them out today but we didn't really have a chance to analyze them so far uh, anything you want to say in a preliminary kind of way? Yeah, boy, are these confusing. Yeah, so, <laughs> that. Yeah, I, this is the most Igor results that we've had uh, reported so far, and we have a few more coming in. I don't know if they're actually going to clarify the picture any or just you know muddy it up even more. 
But uh, we're hoping that we can actually, part of the reason we're not doing the results today is because the results are just confusing enough to us that we really needed to sit back and take some more time to analyze. We also had, uh, have had some numbers run by a couple of people so that we can actually talk actual, you know, IBU type numbers. But yeah, I mean, to me, this is really interesting because it makes me scratch my head about it. So we're going to take, a, a, you know, until the next episode of the show, so episode 66, and we're going to uh, stand back and try and figure out exactly how to tell you guys about this information and what exactly we think it means. Yeah, um, I so far I'm surprised by the results. I, they are not exactly the same as my own uh, perceptions of uh, of this, but that's all we're going to say for right now because in a couple of weeks we hope to have something. Uh, that we can actually pull out of all this data and, and give you a, a little bit better idea what's going on. Yeah. So there you go. That's just a little bit of a tease. I know it's weird, but we, we do need some time to figure out exactly how to present this information to you guys so that it makes some dang sense. Yep. That's right. Okay. So stick around when we come back, we'll be going to New Zealand one more time to hear about some more of uh, their homebrew conference there. And, uh, some impressions from my wife, Paula, about the beer that she got a chance to try. So we'll be right back. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the work to cool enough to add Whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super-fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your word in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art. They're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. what time it is guys that's right it's time for us to sit down in the comfy chairs put on the smoking jackets and well let's just talk about some things and today we actually have a live special guest that's right somebody who can put up with denny more than i can say hi <laughs> hey i would like to introduce all of you to my lovely wife paula hello <laughs> and there she is Paula's here because uh, she came along to New Zealand with me for the conference there. I, you guys remember we talked about that last time. The first day of the conference, there were two tours going on, and I could only do one at a time. So I went on the hop tour. Paula went on what they call the imbiber tour, where uh, they visited four different breweries, right? Was it four? Correct. Okay. So we all got on buses early in the morning. Uh, fortunately, a friend of Annie's had come along named Jenny, and Jenny and Paula went along on the Imbiber tour, so they had somebody to drink with, uh, besides all the other people. How many, there was like a pretty full bus, right? I think there were close to 30 people. Okay, okay. So you guys hit four breweries. So uh, where did you go first? Uh, we got on the bus, we left for about 10 or so, and the first place we went to was a place that they said they called Stoke Beer, 
And I learned when we got there that that's actually the name of the beer that they brew. It's Ma- it's Macashan's Brewery, and it's uh, it it's in Stoke, New Zealand, which is just a little ways outside of Nelson. It was a a small commercial brewery, I believe, would be a good way to describe it. It was housed in an old uh, historic cidery building, which was kind of neat. Yeah, that apparently back in the 1940s they started making uh, Rochdale cider in this building, and in 1980 the uh, Macashans bought it and started uh, essentially. What their website says, I I cheated and took a got a few extra notes. No, no, <laughs> see that's not cheating. That's called research. <laughs> that's right. That's totally allowed. And it was, and so the Macashans when the Macashans bought it um, in 1980, they are sort of regarded as the beginning of the craft beer uh, movement in New Zealand. Oh, really? That's cool. Yeah. And so we went, and since our group was sort of large, they split us into two two sections and about 15 people at a time went on the tour while the other people did the tasting and vice versa. So we went on the, Jenny and I went on the first tour and it was a real, it was a really interesting old building and we went all up through all these sort of, it's like a big wooden structure all up through the the various places where they were brewing and, and um, then storing the beer and we got little tastes along the way. And it was very interesting. They had a lot of history that they were telling us about as they as they went by. I, I didn't know I'd be talking about it later, so I didn't take notes. <laughs> That's another reason I went to the website to check is to see <laughs> see a little bit more about uh, what I what I thought I remembered. Um, and that you know we were there for maybe half an hour, and when we got back from the tour, we sat and and we tasted their their Stoke beer. And it, it, we tasted four, I believe. There was a Pilsner, an Amber, an IPA, and a Dark. And all of, as is typical in New Zealand, all of their beers were uh, fairly what we would consider to be, anyway, low alcohol. I think it's pretty average for them, which is they were all in the 42 to 4.8% range. So that was a good place to start since it was still the morning and we weren't really, <laughs> Jenny and I weren't really looking to, you know, start drinking heavily yet. But, and so, um, and that was fun. That was definitely the largest of the four breweries that we went to. That was, it's uh, a com- really a true commercial operation. They had a big bottling line and and they seemed to be doing doing well in their business and their, their beer was good. Well, what was your favorite of the beers? I, I liked what was my favorite of the beers? Uh, the I, I'm sure it would be the IPA. It, it's always going to be always going to be the IPA. <laughs> but um, but it doesn't really in in my humble opinion it doesn't really uh, compare like to the the American style of IPA. It was because I think it's probably because of the low alcohol. It seemed a little less flavorful than some that I've certainly had before but it was still a very nice you know they were all very nice um sort of mellow well and i just wanted to set the record straight here as as i understand it according to legend in order to maintain marital harmony there are certain rules about beers being brewed in the household right uh well sometimes yeah the the way i've always heard is that that there has to be an ipa or the rye pale ale somewhere on tap otherwise there's trouble Uh, yeah somewhere somewhere in the yes 
somewhere in the vicinity, there should be a good, yeah. a good IPA. You know, and what, what Paula noticed is really what I noticed, too, is that with all the British heritage there, the beers tend to be lower alcohol, and most of them are not hopped to the level that uh, that we hop IPAs around here. So, you know, uh, she pretty much always went for the IPA, but they weren't always exactly what she expected. I generally could say that was nice. <laughs> So, so yeah, and the other the other thing that we learned about the the alcohol level over there, and maybe Denny's talked about this um, already, is that a lot of the reason that their their beers are low alcohol is because, first of all, the government taxes according to the percentage of alcohol in their beverages, and then they have very strict drunk driving laws. And so, if you want to be able to go to your local pub and drink more than one beer, it's going to have to be sort of a low alcohol beer or you're going to be over the limit by the time you leave. So I just thought that was, you know, I mean, it's sort of like the the way the government and the culture works over there. The lower alcohol bill, beers are what work for them. So let's see. Secondly, we went to, uh, let's see, Eddie Line. Now, Eddie Line is, a very, is a, another one of the very small breweries. It actually is owned by a, a man named Mick Hanekamp, uh, I think is, is his name. I'm probably butchering that, but I do that all the but, time. <laughs> but anyway, we did, we met Mick and he took us on a tour of his very small uh, brewery. It's a brewery in Pizzeria and his origins are Colorado and he and his wife had, had started a craft brewery in Buena Vista, Colorado, also called Eddie Line. And um, when they went on a tour of New Zealand some years back, they just loved it so much and they thought it would be a great place to bring up their children. And so they turned the operation of the Colorado brewery over to a relative, a brother or a brother-in-law, and moved off to New Zealand and started up an Eddie Line there in Richmond, New Zealand. Um, they also, because it's a brewery and pizzeria, they also served us lunch, which was great. Oh, nice. So, yeah, we had pizzas for lunch, and their beers, they had a pretty extensive list of beers, and I noticed that their, the alcohol percentage in their beers was a little higher, and I think probably that's because of the, you know, origins in the United States, that even, even though they might have to deal with taxes and things, they were, they were definitely making slightly higher alcohol alcohol beers and i drank one with my pizza called hop rider pale ale and then i had a taste of another one called crank yanker ipa and that <laughs> and that was that was uh that was a better I, I don't know if i should say things like that was a better ipa than <laughs> it was <laughs> so, it was more what you think of as an ipa that's right that that ipa was a little closer to what i'm used to as an ipa and the pizza was very good. It was, uh, there, were, there were, again, it was a group of 30 of us, so they brought out a bunch of pizzas. And he, um, the, let's see, the, uh, the owner of that one, Mick, took us back into his little brewery, in the, which is just in the back. And he, t you know, he talked about the origins of the, the brewery and how m much beer he can make in his system and 
all of that information is available on their website if you want to find out find it out. Yeah, you know what? And we can put links to all of these uh, breweries up on our website yeah. so people can check them out yes. and see where you were. Again, I was not I was I was not taking notes at the time. Um, so when when they talked the technical stuff, I just smiled and nodded. <laughs> so you can find all that stuff from the from the That's website. That's right. Yeah. Well, and yeah. now we're going to see how good your memory but, is as we move into breweries later in the day. Later, and we were we were certainly not um, over over imbibing on our imbiber tour. Where it was it was pretty pretty soft drinking along the way. But let's see. So I guess the other yeah the other thing that was in, interesting about Eddie Line was it one of the things that Mick said there that became a common theme as we went on was that he really loves the idea of having that pizzeria there with his little brewery and serving beer directly to the public. he That's his favorite thing to do. I don't even know if they put out, I think probably put out kegs, you know, that can be purchased and things like that. But I don't think that they, that you can actually get their beer like in bottles anywhere. They don't, they don't actually package it. No, no. And, and he was very firm in his, idea that he wanted beer that was going to be drunk quickly after he made it, um, not sit around anywhere and, and get less and less uh, flavorful as it went, as the time went by. So that, that the next two breweries after that, the, the owners also talked about that particular aspect of their brewery, that they just loved giving beer directly to the public the people and they like watching the people drink their beer <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of the same thing as a home brewer though i mean you know you really enjoy watching people enjoy your beer well, I, you and know? i think so even i think even attitude. packaging breweries nowadays with tap rooms yeah there's some of that same joy there yes so where'd you go next so next we went to golden bear brewing oh let's see so eddie let's see. eddie line was in new richmond and it was a little it was probably 10 or 15 minutes away from um the first one that where Stoke beer was brewed. But then we went on up to Golden Bear Brewing, and it was in Mapua, uh, New Zealand, and it was uh, right on a bayfront, a little shopping area and restaurants called Mapua Wharf. And it was just a beautiful location and probably took us mm, 20, 25 minutes to get there. And it was all driving uh, up through all of the vineyard areas and orchards. And since it was fall, the beginning of fall, um, the orchards were just loaded with fruit. And it was just a beautiful drive. And that's what Jenny and I had sort of hoped for when we went on the the, the Imbiber tour was that it would, would be sort of a sightseeing tour as well. And it certainly was. Just gorgeous countryside. So we got up to uh, Golden Bear Brewing and... Um, there's another another similarity here that Jim, at, who is the owner of Golden uh, Beer Brewing, is from Los Angeles. So he's also a, a U.S. transplant over to New Zealand, and for a, for a lot of the same reasons as he and his wife visited New Zealand, and they just thought it, it was so beautiful, and that they wanted to figure out how they could go and live there. And he actually at that point in time ran a millworking factory in LA and he, he didn't know how to brew at all and so he, <laughs> there's a challenge yeah so he so they went back to the US and he continued doing that but he started learning to brew and it actually took them 
10 years to get back to New Zealand. But when they moved back, they opened a brewery up there in, in Mapua. And it's a just a beautiful spot. And he pretty much runs the whole thing himself. I'm sure he has a few helpers, uh, but it's a very small operation. And what he discovered, you know, he had the same um, philosophy as Mick, is that he wanted the people to come to his brewery and drink the beer. And what he discovered was one day he was in the brewery and a couple of guys came in and said, we could play music here tonight if you wanted us to. And so he agreed with them on some uh, small sum to come in and sit and play their guitars at his brewery that evening. And people, since it was a little sort of shopping area and had other restaurants nearby, people sort of drifted over when they heard the music and, and pretty soon he had a, a fair crowd. And so he thought, hmm, I'm on to something here. <laughs> this could be good. <laughs> and he, yeah, and he started making that a regular feature and he and he said that at one point, uh, a year or so after he had started having the music, he kept having to, you know, get more and more space around the shopping center available. And finally, he was setting up stages. And one night, they had 700 people there to listen to the music at his little tiny <laughs> brewery. And he, he said, and, and I think I have this right, he said they sold 24 thousand dollars in beer <laughs> wow <laughs> well, 700 now that's new zealand dollars you know um so it's not quite as much u.s but i'm pretty sure that's what he said it was some exorbitant so amount that, at that's any about, rate you know around 30 30 bucks a, a person. person that doesn't seem Th uh, 34 dollars yeah. and 28 cents and so he yeah okay, thank, thank you thank mr numbers <laughs> <laughs> but he, he you know he he just is sticking with that model, as you might imagine, you know, that, that he has become as much a music venue as a brewery, but he sells a lot of beer out there. Out of there. Well, you know, and I, I ran across Golden Bear beers in several of the, uh, the restaurants and pubs that I went to, so he obviously doesn't just sell it all right out of there. No, and he does, he does sell, yes, I think he, I think, you know, he sells kegs of beer to to venues like restaurants and yeah and things like that and he talked about that that was one of his little stories that was funny about his trying to run the, the brewery very efficiently he was talked about that if you ask any brewery owner so where are your kegs they'll, they'll have no idea they don't have any idea where all the kegs that they've put out into the world are but he tracks all of his kegs <laughs> So I thought Smart that was man. interesting. He said, so, because yeah, because he said the kegs are really expensive to buy. And so he just keeps track of them all. And so that was his, that was one of his little stories. He had a number of little stories. He was very, very good at talking about his brewery and his, his adventure there that he's having, getting, building it up to, to what he, and making it what he wants it to be. That's, I think after, um, running a factory in, in L.A., he's he's into really making things what he wants it to be now. <laughs> so did you have a favorite beer there? The beer, I just drank one beer there. He didn't... An um, IPA? Yeah, it was an IPA. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sensing a theme. Um, he, he didn't, yeah, he didn't <laughs> offer, you could buy small, you know, sort of, Jenny and I were generally buying sort of half pint 
beers, smaller smaller glasses. But he wasn't offering like a a tasting. Nobody offered a tasting except for the Stoke beer at the beginning. So you had to sort of pick pick one you liked and and or two if that was to your taste and and try that. So I tried to try one called. It was it was a rye IPA. It was, right? rye, it was a rye something. Yes, it was something with the rye, and I think it was like a rye IPA. And I said, "Can you tell me about the rye beer?" And he said, "Yes, I can." He said, "I just sold the last glass of it to one of your tour mates." <laughs> <laughs> and so I said, "Okay, how about um, I, I had a fat toad IPA?" And again, it was I think again because he's you know, sort of originates in the U.S., his IPA was about six and a half percent. So it was, a, and it was actually a very good IPA. I liked, I liked his IPA quite well. So let's see. Then you Move, went. Then we went, okay. Then we went on to Townsend Brewery and it was in Motuika, New Zealand, which was again, a little farther north out of Nelson, a little farther north from Mapua. Um, it was, uh, the brewer there is Martin Townsend, and apparently he just moved into that new location back in August of 2017. He had been in uh, Muteri, uh, New Zealand, before then. So he moved to the to Motuika, New Zealand, and moved his brewery there because he found that he had some friends who were operating a cafe called Toad Hall Cafe. He was uh, operating on the same model of serving beer directly to consumers as as much as possible. He also um, does cakes and and the like, but I don't think he is bottling at all. And so he there's a like the Toad Hall Cafe right next door is, is apparently sort of a mainstay in the area. Uh, has a good good clientele of regular customers, and now you can get Townsend beer directly piped over from <laughs> the brewery to the cafe, or you can go over to the brewery and taste beer over there too. Was it a fairly small brewery? It was also very small. Yes. All except for the first one, the three of these were sort of like one man operations. They right. were, they were very small. We we had his American IPA. The first night we got in there, we went to a restaurant and uh, had his American IPA there. And it was really good. I mean, it was, it was the most American IPA of any of the beers that we tried there. Yes, I agree with that. So, and he and he had just one beer for us to, all to try, and and it was a dark beer, and I I can't remember what it was exactly. It was either a porter or a stout. Um, it was nice. <laughs> it wasn't an IPA. <laughs> it wasn't an IPA. I know that it was very. It was a very dark beer. And he told us a funny story about it was a beer that he had had tr a little bit of trouble um, moving. And so he thought it, that serving it to the tour group would be a great way to, <laughs> to get rid of it. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so he got so and and he talked to us for quite a while about his, you know, his philosophy of, of brewing. Um, there are, there's, you know, of course, there were lots of people on the tour who knew a lot more about brewing than than Jenny and I, even though we know a fair amount since we have partners who are home brewers. But there were people on the tour who liked to talk a lot about all of the 
esoteric details of this and that. And <laughs> we just listened along and didn't really know what they were talking about. Some of the You time. say esoteric and I say fascinating. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Did you have a favorite of all the ones you went to? I think I liked Golden Bear, but it, but it would probably be because it was in such a pretty place. It was it was so beautiful that Denny and I went wandering around through all the shops and looking at the shops and restaurants, and we almost missed the bus. <laughs> they had to come and get us. <laughs> almost left behind yes, the brewery in New Zealand. I don't know. Be, yeah, I the the last be, time I saw her, she was drinking beer on the beach. There'd <laughs> be a lot uh, worse places to be left, I'm sure. That was, that was a very beautiful spot. And Denny and I were very happy to go on that tour since we had had a hike planned for that day and the weather was not very good. It was kind of rainy and drizzly the whole way. But so it was nice to be inside and um, talking to people about their beers and and it was all they were all nice places and and I guess that's that. <laughs> well, so let me let me ask now that you, I mean obviously you've been around to a bunch of American craft breweries as well. Right. And um, aside from the alcohol level, you know, that sort of more sessionable beer level thing. Any other differences that you noted between like your experiences in New Zealand versus, you know, here in the states? Well, I guess just the main thing and it, it may be alcohol related or it may just be they, that their tastes are slightly different, is things just seemed overall more mildly flavored. Um, they were, There was no sort of slap you in the face sort of beers or really, I mean, I didn't have a chance to taste any, at least any like sour beers or any of the things that maybe these days I, I think of as being very flavorful beer. You know, I don't remember seeing a lot of sour beers. No. That may be a trend that hasn't really hit there it yet. It could be. And since I, well, you know, since as I branch out a little bit from IPA, um, <laughs> I, I've really come to like some of the sour beers, um, and uh, especially like the beers that Ale Song is making. Right. I've, I've found a number of those that I really enjoy a lot. And but then these were definitely I would just call milder beers. It, it would be a beer that I would maybe would go great with food because it wasn't really an overpowering flavor. Um, but that would be my main comment. Well, thanks. And before we let you go back out to the garden, I want to talk a little bit about Brewmania. Okay. We, uh, I I talked a little bit about this last time. It's the homebrew competition part of this, but it's unlike any homebrew competition I've ever been involved with before because instead of uh, getting a score sheet and judging beers to the style guidelines, it's a totally hedonistic organoleptic kind of thing where they put four beers on the table and they give you three bottle caps and you get to vote for the three beers you like. And the one who gets no votes gets knocked out of the competition. Um, and the great thing was that you don't have to be a beer judge when you're judging like that. So Paula actually got a chance to judge. So <laughs> what was your overall impression? Well, first of all, I guess I wouldn't, I mean, maybe you could call it judging, but I, <laughs> picking, but, yeah, choosing. picking or choosing would be more, more likely. I, I mean, it was, it was a great big room full of people all doing this. So it was, it had a very high level of camaraderie, I guess you could say. <laughs> it, it, it's, a, it's a really fun kind of thing. Yeah, you know? it was fun. It was fun. I w 
when Jenny and I walked over there after you and Annie had already gone over, we had no expectation to actually be participating. <laughs> so when we came in and they said, oh, we sit here, sit down here, and here's your, here's your four glasses of beer, and here are your bottle caps. We were sort of uh, slightly taken aback at first that we would be asked to judge people's beer. But when they explained that it was just like, do you like it or do you know? not like it you know vote for the ones you like the best and leave one out each round and that's what we did and it was it was fun it was i tasted some uh very good beers and some really awful beers the and, douglas fir beer oh there were some yeah <laughs> but but then it you know obviously the person who entered them must have thought that they they were good i would assume so well, again, they might have been good to their taste. Yeah, good to their taste. And so everybody's got different tastes. So it, as a, as entering a competition, I don't, you know, I don't know what people decide they why they decide to enter a competition, but but there were a lot of very different beers in in the selection that I got. And all the tables in the room got different selections. Right. And I never did quite figure out exactly how they arrived at the winner, but <laughs> but they did and he's coming to Portland and yeah, that's right. We'll have him on the show that we uh, record at uh, HomebrewCon in June, along with uh, the three guys who are the organizers of the New Zealand Homebrew Conference, Carl, Mike, and Ed. Uh, so stay tuned for that. Hopefully we'll get some recipes from him, too. But thanks a bunch, sweetie, for taking time out of your day to join us. And now, look, the sun is out, and you can go out and hit the garden. All right. You're welcome. Thank you. Off I go. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Okay, so while Paula was off doing her imbibing that day, and I was on the hop tour, one of the places that we stopped at was called Plant and Food Research. And this is one of, I think there are like 11 of these centers in New Zealand, and there are 900 people working in them. And there's, they have some in Australia and the U.S. also, uh, some outreach stations. And it is pretty much what they say it is what the name says it is it's a research center for plants and food and they do a lot of work on uh, hop breeding and hop research there so uh we have a little bit of a field recording from uh ron beatson who runs the program there and kind of showed us around to some of the uh, the hop fields he's going to talk about what it's like uh, breeding new hop varieties keeping them going, and uh, just some of the challenges they face in New Zealand. So unless you're driving, grab yourself a beer and let's listen to Ron. In terms of our research here, it's mostly a plant breeding program. Historically, we've been working on hops since the Second World War. The program was started up initially because of uh, a disease in the soil, which was um, prevalent in, at that time, uh, called black root rot. And the hops that were grown then were a late cluster cultivar from... North America, and, uh, and it was quite susceptible to this disease, but it was a good performing, agronomically it was really good. Um, so uh, what they did was they, they noticed that the, our ancestors had brought hops in 150 or so years ago. Um, the European material was quite resistant to the um, disease, but conversely, it, they didn't yield very well. The, um, the European cultivars are well out of their climate zone, and um, so they crossed material from North America with the European material came up with disease-resistant material. And since that time we've been doing, um, our program's been based around uh, polyploids, um, uh, breeding seedless material, 
Yeah, so that's that's it in a nutshell. We've we've funding comes from uh, we've got a um, ministry for business innovation and employment. It's quite a mouthful. Uh, MB for short, and we I also I can't remember what it's called. I won't say any bad words about that. So no, no, they, they've been very generous. We've, we're in the midst of a uh, six-year um, grant, and we get, uh, they've been very good. We had to it's a contestable fund. As uh, for those of you who are involved in any science programs in New Zealand, we they don't they don't hand don't, they don't hand the dollars out at the start of the year and say goodbye. They they expect quite a lot of it. So they, and you, and it's about a twenty percent. Um, success rate of getting these things, so we, we feel pretty privileged that we've got, we're successful with that bit, and um, so anyway, we've got a lot of basic science, we have to produce, you know, a lot of basic science during that six years, and also do uh, user-end stuff as well, so um, uh, we, we're doing quite a lot of work around uh, growers and also brewers, and uh, so you'll be hearing a little bit more about that from various people as we go around, so... Uh, just be aware, we've had a massive flood through here about a month ago, I don't know if some of you may have heard of it, and uh, it's, um, it, it, it caused quite a lot of damage, but it's, uh, there's a lot of mud around here still, so if you just, um, uh, Kerry's very, um, very precious about his brewery in there, and so, so if you drag any mud in there, he's probably going to um, scold you severely. Clean it when you guys leave. If you just, when you're going in the brewery, if you just go in right behind us here, straight up, we're, we're done. Yeah, so. What we've got is a whole lot of different, uh, different horticultural crops there. We're sort of, um, uh, I guess, um, all the crops we grow in, all the horticultural crops we grow in, in our institute, which we've got, we've got 14 sites around New Zealand. Uh, for those of you not familiar with plant and food, it's, um, and we've got 850 people employed plant and food. Our site's predominantly around genetics, so we've got a uh, pear breeding program here. We've got raspberries, boysenberries, um, blackberries, blackcurrants, and also uh, blueberries and hops, and also uh, kiwi fruit. Um, we've got a, we're specialising in um, the novel kiwi fruit types, the little, the little um, hairless kiwi fruits that are sort of pop in your mouth, like grape-sized ones, um, and the different colours as well. So it's um, it's something that, that they, they grow very well down here actually, um, in the South Island, and uh, our climate's quite ideal for that. If you look at it, um, kiwi fruits are native of China, and um, the, the little hairless kiwi fruits up around the northern areas of, of, of China, so it's um, you know cooler environments up there. So um, yeah, this this is a stream that uh, it's hard to believe now, but it's uh, it was it was raging a raging torrent sort of came over the banks and sort of flowed down into our various crops, including the hops. Went right through the hops sure. and smashed our into our kiln. You'll see it at the other end there when Lawrence shows you. You know, he's, um, we've had to shut the place down for a couple of weeks to clean it all up. Anyway, that's that's enough about all the the site here. Is we've got about 40 hectares and we've got another. Um, property across the Motueka River. The Motueka River comes down the, out of the mountains up there, uh, the base of the Kaharangi National Park and stuff here. And um, the other side, that we've got another research um, plot over there as well. So, yeah, anyway, so as I said, most of the work here is around genetic improvement, so the new cultivation. There are research plots on the, on the north side, this side here where I'm standing is uh, we've got a row of each of the commercial cultivars, and um, actually, some of them are. They're looking worse for wares now, mainly because of the flood damage and things. But we um, also, it's right at the tail end of the season, and uh, most of the hops have been, um, we've taken samples out of these. So these are just demonstration um, plots, really. Um, so, 
you can identify each of the cultivars there. It's got they've got a name on the tags. Well, no much sense me reeling them off uh, if you want to know them. But I mean the, the one down the uh, the second row over there, that's green bullet, for instance. That's probably the one that's um, ripe about now. And the next one next to it is Wymere. And this one that's brown next to uh, uh, the third, yeah, this this row here is um, so, uh, Southern Cross. And then we work our way up here. You know, there's Pacific Gem, and then there's um, uh, God, I can't even remember what this one is. Washington, I think. And um, then there's Pacific Jade and, and whatever other things. Wakatu, yeah. So um, anyway, we um, so that that's the tar that this is the sort of the business end of the plant breeding program, if you like. And the other end is, is on the other side of us here is the seedlings. That's where we 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 we, we actually set them up as we call them stages. So. This is what we call stage one, and so it's a two-year cycle of um, evaluation. And so what we do is we do our cross and uh, get the seed out, extract it, and um, and germinate it over the winter months, and then we put it out in the field that that spring. So it's uh, within a year of um, being in the seed bottle, it's in the field if you like. And then the second year we start evaluating. So these these plants here are actually two years old, so they've been in the ground. In fact. They've only been in the ground 18 months, but you know, we call them two-year-old plants. And uh, the ones with tags on are some of the later maturing ones, which we may or may not harvest, depending on whether, whether we think they're good enough. So we've been through here, we've harvested several hundred plants in this block already since mid-February. And um, we've, um, our crosses, we've, you know, we're, we're trying to do hop, we've got this theme called hops with a difference, is, is what, you know, it's a sort of catchphrase for us. And it's, and it's on, on the website of NZ Hops too. They're, they're, of course, they're our major clients. And um, so the idea is that we don't want to be in the same space with our cultivars as the Americans or the Germans, pretty much. And so, um, because, you know, it's, why would we want to be there? You know, basically, we, we don't want to be producing the same things as, as... And they probably don't want us to be either. So, uh, and you know, we're less than 1% of the world's crops, so we're not going to endanger everybody, the, the, the big boys, if you like. Um, so... Our hops are really targeted, 80% plus is exported, and it's um, targeted at um, niche markets and the premium end of the market. So, you know, it's so high, high value, it's the only way New Zealand can survive, really. And like a lot of crops, not just hops, it's a lot, a lot of things, but a long way from markets. So um, the hops here, are, as I said, well, we, we were going to be finishing them off today, but there's too much rain, and they don't like being harvested in the rain. Were they harvesting at max? No. No, no. 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 Yeah. Doesn't surprise me. Um, so yeah, it, too much water is, I suppose, uh, Brent was, was Brent the one that showed you around. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it 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 you can harvest them, but they it spoils the hops anyway. Yeah, they just go, they, they sweat too much and they they don't dry properly. And uh, so yeah, anyway, so back to the program. We've we're lucky here. We don't have any pests and diseases that uh, most other countries have got. Um, with our hops, so we've concentrated very heavily on flavour and aroma with our program and uniqueness. So, and that's that's really our, you know, the, the hops with the differences, all those things really, and also the fact that we've um, got our, what we call a polyploid program. So we've uh, most countries um, grow hops without males. So you know, most of you would, I'm sure that you you guys are all geeks about bloody hops anyway. So you know that the got the boys and girl plants. <laughs> Male and female plants on separate, they're separate um, entities if you like, and um, you can see them behind us. You can see the male plants there, the ones, the ones that are looking a bit brown and horrible. 
Um, and so the uh, yeah, so we to get to be the New Zealand program in the 1960s, they decided they wanted to go do it genetically. So we, but of course that's easy to say, but to actually accomplish that, you've got to double the chromosome number of one of the parents, to up to four times the. Uh, Four, four sets of chromosomes instead of the normal two sets. So, and then you cross the four with the two, and you end up with the progeny from that are what we call triploids, or um, they're seedless. And so these are all the, the triploid seedlings behind us. Every plant over here is genetically different, if you give you an idea, and we grow about 3,000 every year. So we are selecting amongst those 3,000 for um, agronomic traits, in, and it doesn't take it. A brain surgeon to realise which ones are good ones out there, and most of the good ones, in fact, we've already harvested. But uh, there are a few good late ones I can see down here now, and uh, so we'll be harvesting them on Monday, I guess now. And uh, so the idea is that we we've got a whole range of whole suite of measurements we look at, not only agronomics, but um, there's a lot of other things, you know, shape of the cone, whether we think it'll be good for machine harvesting. Um, the other things we look at are seedlessness again, and uh, than the chemistry, which you'll be hearing all about in a few minutes anyway, up at the, in the lab. And if it passes all those things, well, we then put it into a larger trial. We start cloning them up, and, um, and the, the good ones out of here are saved. Um, and uh, usually out of 3,000 seedlings, we'll save about 50, probably 50 selections, which we think have got reasonably <coughs> co good commercial potential. And from that... Um, we, as I said, we clone them up and we use the uh, glasshouse facilities to do that. Put the plants out in, um, in uh, observation rows and then we start doing um, brewing trials and, and the likes on them. So our little pilot brewing plant has been in, here in action since 2014 and um, it's, we're still learning how to drive it and uh, it's, as you guys know, brewing, it sounds simple but you know, you, you can tweak things at the wrong time or tweak things at the right time to get really good results. So we are generally, we, I won't uh, tell you anything about the brewing process, but you know we're, we're using that as a tool, if you like, in our breeding program. So you've got the agronomics out here, you've got the, we take each vine is harvested and taken up to the, our stationary picker, and so we drop them onto trailers. We're a bit more manual than what the growers are, um, but it's the same process really. And so from there we... Um, take a sample and you again you'll see them um, up in the shed there we take, just take a, a small tin of each and um, it's like a mini kiln and we get a, a dried sample from that for our chemistry and also brewing if we need to so it's 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 a fairly logical procedure um, it's just a few more end bits in it it's very important for us uh, the each of those tags if you look at them they've got a, a barcodes and things on them uh, not not the ones on the post but the other ones have got barcodes so we, we try to do everything electronically so we don't make mistakes which uh, I'm sure you guys have uh, in whatever you do in your careers you know you know the you know, accuracy is the most important thing so um, we try to reduce the human error to the bare minimum and um, Anyway, so the result is that you, know, you go from stage one and stage two is sort of the observation trials I was telling about. Stage three is where you're a bit more certain about their brewing properties and we, we clone them up a, a little bit further. We do um, replicated trials on site here and um, from there we, uh, we check uh, against uh, control cultivars and known cultivars, just their chemistry and uh, yielding ability and all the other attributes. And then we... Um, 
stage, that's, so that's stage three. Uh, we call them small plot trials, and um, so we're getting quite a lot of statistics coming out of that by then. And uh, then it's on to um, stage four, which is grower trials. So you're cloning them up. The, the really good ones out of there go to growers. And it's at that stage where it's just trying to get better at it, really. It's just like most uh, plant breeding roles. We're trying to get the, the selections out to growers as soon as possible, but at the same time, we don't want to give them duds that they wasting their time growing. So um, they've got to be good agronomically for, to start with. They've got to have good chemistry profiles so that the marketers can sell them. And they've also got, obviously got to have good brewing properties. So um, uh, so that's what we do, really. And then stage five is cultivar release. And that usually takes us at least 10 years to do. Um, so that's, that's the procedures. It's probably no different than most crops that I know of anyway, be it an annual crop like uh, wheat or barley right through to some of the other ones. Some of the perennial crops are even longer than our process. But because our plants flower within the first uh, two years, we're lucky because we can just uh, bang them out in the field and then next year evaluate them. So, And right through this garden here, we have um, controls as well. That's something I didn't talk about. But every now and again, we have a, um, a cultivar that's spread as a single plant. We clone them up and put them out at various places in the garden here. So we've got an independent assessment, if you like, of the, the performance in, in comparison to the control cultivars. So behind us here, you can, you're most welcome to sort of have a look at these various cultivars. Some, unfortunately, some of the rock stars have gone. This one here was, um, that one was Motueka, and the other gap over there was Rewaka. We, you know, we, we need all those samples. This one here is Nelson Sovin, which is, um, we don't need quite so much of, but we Still, um, you can see the other end's been hacked into, so we've taken samples off that earlier in the year. Where do you keep your master uh, in the wheat. Sorry? Where do you keep your master cultivars? You know, like, do you keep master stock, or once you get it bred and there's enough in circulation, you know, in terms of what do you propagate off? Um, we have commercial propagators. Just, right. Yeah, mm. yeah. And uh, we supply them with high health material from here. And, uh, and that's grown from here, or is it? Yeah, it's, it's selected from here, and from each cultivar, and then they give them to them. So these are your masters, really? Yeah, yeah. yeah these are not uh, guaranteed to be virus-free, but what we've um, we just use these as sort of demonstrations. We do a lot of storage trials on the hops as well. So, yeah. so that, these are, these are all pretty much either dead ripe or past their best, unfortunately. So, yeah. How did you come to realize the potential for creating flavors outside of what we're normally perceiving? To roll up the bill. Typical flavors. <laughs> you know, that's the big revolution here. Obviously, mm. it is plants that have a lot of citrus or have a lot of different kinds of fruit or berry, mm. you know, when when did that become apparent to you that maybe what people thought about mm. as hop flavors what was just a small subset of what was possible? Yeah. Was there a process? Was there a, a eureka moment or any particular... Well, I guess you can call it a, a, a eureka moment, but I mean, uh, when I first started, the major um selection criteria was more alpha and more yield pretty much sure yeah and you know that was what everybody was doing around the world and um, I um, um, I spent I spent quite a lot of time in Oregon and Washington mm -hmm. with the breeders over there when I right. first started and uh, um, I, I did my PhD in the states and on my way back they told me oh, you're going to be working hots when you get back to New Zealand so mm -hmm. I thought I better bit of bone up about them so anyway so I, it was a really good trip and um, you know I spent a month or six weeks there and, uh, and sort of got some pretty good ideas about what they were selecting for mm -hmm. and became aware of the importance of chemistry mm -hmm. and they were right at the forefront of particularly Oregon State University their mm -hmm. chemistry department there was really good so 
Um, so I picked up a lot of ideas. I work, I've worked quite closely with them. And then um, when I go back to New Zealand, we, we, we our genetic collection here wasn't very extensive. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to uh, get a better collection. So I went back to the States and we you know, walked the plots and looked at some more cultivars. Of course, that was in the era when there wasn't any plant variety rights. And so, but now, of course, there is, and you can't get hold of some of the cultivars, and they can't get a hold of some of ours. So, mm-hmm. um, so the Eureka moment, I guess, you know, it came. It wasn't. It wasn't a sort of an overnight one. <laughs> it was um, Nelson Sovin, probably one of the first, and mm-hmm. and it's um, the other two were Walker, or particularly Walker and Motueka. They're all. They were actually crossed in the 1980s. Those cultivars, and by the mid 90s, they were. We realised they had nice fruity flavours, mm-hmm. but. You know, at that stage, the craft beer boom hadn't really hit. Right. Even in the States, it was only just trickling Pretty in. Pretty small in the 80s, yeah. And uh, so, but, you know, we used to send samples away, and they'd say, oh, God, this, this has got an unusual, you know, this is black currant, or it's got whatever flavours to it. And then we, we um, at that stage, we were giving some of our advanced selections out to, because um, they're just numbered lines, mm-hmm. we gave them out to uh, Lion Breweries here in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. And they've been very good supporters. Lion and DB have been great supporters, and a lot of people bag them for, because of their beers and things. Uh, nowadays, they're not considered to be, you know, super hoppy or whatever. But they, those people have, even today, you know, they are some of our best evaluators. They're very well-trained people, and they've... Um, they've seen us right anyway so that's my plug for them mm-hmm. and um, they uh, um, so what we did was we in the late 90s they were doing trials on this on Nelson, what became Nelson Savin they said oh this, this one you know we've done some brewing trials on this it's got pretty fruity fruity um, uh, winey flavours to it and I said oh yeah okay and then they went back and did another trial and and sure enough it was still fruity and so what, what happened was that we um, at that stage they were in the process of taking over Max Brewery here in Nelson. It was the first independent um, craft brewer in New Zealand, pretty much. And well, I think it was, actually. That and Emerson's, I think, were the first ones. And uh, anyway, um, the McCashin family ran it, and they uh, and eventually sold it, it to Lion. And Lion decided to launch this hop uh, in a new beer. And uh, it, was, it was called Aramac. And some I don't know whether anybody remembers that, but you know, that was the beer. And it was a, they used to do seasonal beers. They used to do their you know Max Gold and Black Mac, and uh, was another one real Max Real Ale. I think it was another one was called. And and this one was sort of like every year they did a seasonal beer, and and they launched it and uh, did a media launch as well. And you know we we're the only plot of Nelson Sovin was here on site, so we had the the whole whole shebang here. And that's where it took off. And so that was the eureka moment for the, uh, for us in terms of uh, realising we have got something that's different. There's potential there, yeah. yeah. And, and likewise, we realised that Rewalker and Motueka were... Well, certainly Rewalker is a lot different. And I, I guess you look at the profiles, you know, if you speak to German people, you know, they've got all the answers to all the, you know, you've got to have this character and you've got to have that there and it's, this, you know, you know, they, you know very dramatic, anyway. So, so, so they've got predefined ideas about what a good aroma should be, and it, and they may well be right. But we've also thought, well, hell, you know, we've we've got something here that's unique, and people like it, and want it, and the new, the, I guess you could call them new world hops, and it's the same in the United States. Sure. they've been developing um, new world hops, if you like. And so, um, and we, I, one thing I have realised over my 30 plus years of working in hops is that 
you know, you don't want to be too prescriptive about things because, you know, I haven't got all the answers. And um, over here we might have a, a, the future rock stars amongst these plants here, but and I don't want to sort of eliminate them because I think they've got the wrong aroma. So a lot of our work now is around um, defining the aroma. We work, uh, we've got a sensory unit in Auckland um, at Mount Albert, um, our research centre up there, and we work uh, quite closely with them. We're just preparing a whole lot of samples for them now, actually, of our seedlings and some of the better ones. We're sort of screening them out at the moment, and uh, we send them up there, and they've got a trained panel who work on other crops as well, and they give us the intensity and also that describe the, the, the aromas as well. So from that we can get an idea of the potential of these things and then we, we start doing brewing trolls on the ones that are a bit different uh, down here in their pilot um, brew plant. And uh, if any are any good, well, we, um, we push them out to the pre-commercial stage. So a lot of our work, you know, we, I think the pathway to market with, um, with the brewing industry is really important and the growing industry. So we, we keep pretty, we're pretty close with those guys. Um, you know, what's the point of our breeding program if we haven't got the, that good pathway so um, and yeah, so we're getting we have research committee meetings uh, and decide which hops should be going out to um, at various stages to the you know I'm, I'm in a typical breed I, I want to push as many as I can out but they sort of keep me in line so to speak and so we don't you know we usually have big arguments about it right friendly arguments about the number of selections that go out. I and mean, I've got two now that I want to see pre-commercial brewing trials on, done on. No, you can't. So, it's too much. Which pisses me well, off. Because no. so, <laughs> I think they've got a lot of potential. And one of them in particular has got really interesting flavours. And if you if you come along to our session on um, Sunday, you'll, you'll get to taste one of them. <coughs> or taste them both, actually. Is that the wow so, hop you're talking about? Um, no, this is post... Post wow, so wow was um, yeah we've done, uh, wow was a, a selection which we um, identified out of our pilot lab um, about um, two or three years ago, and we put it out to um, onto a grower property at that stage. And so all the trial work that's been done on up to now has been on a, quite a s small number of plants, less than a hundred plants. And so we've released it to a lot of um, brewers last season, and uh, from. Um, Jason Bathgate up in um, McLeod's down to uh, Martin Bennett down in um, the laboratory down in Christchurch and all points in between really. Garage Project and there's a few around Nelson that have done it. Um, also, uh, some of you know Kelly Ryan and um, Falcon Brewer in Wellington. So he, th those people have all got samples of them. We just give them small amounts and we say, could you do us a batch and you know, tell us what you think of it? So I think that's a very important part of our program is to get that really good feedback. Mm -hmm. So we put a lot of we get a lot of you know, put a lot of time into um, getting close to the brewers and uh, and and this selection is now going. Uh, looks like it's going to go offshore for evaluation as well. We haven't done offshore evaluations mm -hmm. up until now, but there's been moves afoot to get our cousins across the ditch to do some trials. Um, so that's being organised by New Zealand Hops, not by me. Mm -hmm. um, so at that stage, you know, it's, I sort of do a lot of the liaising, liaising and cajoling that I don't get to um, <laughs> decide which ones. But up, up until now, I've been, um, I've been getting them, um, I've been doing it. But um, I think Jason's coming to the... Um, he's, he's doing a session at the Home Brewers, yeah. I believe, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. So, but there's, um, yeah, it's just a gradual procedure. I think, um, 
you know, as I said, plant breeders want to have more out there in commercial production than what's really feasible. So the industry sort of, as you know, it's growing a little bit at the moment. It's, in fact, it's growing quite a lot here in New Zealand, and um, the economics are pretty good for it, so they're all up and, up and running. So um, there are a lot of new growers. I think there's nine new growers coming into the... Um, into the district and we're starting to you know converting other crops over to um, or other plants um, over to um, hop production now so do you use a standard uh, you have a spider diagram you use to characterize characterize hops and yep. sensory trials yeah mm. yeah it's all standard we're, we're on on um, Sunday you're going to be doing it on a phone so uh, yeah. you've, you've all got iPhones I'm sure so you'll be we're, we're, we put you into the um, hot seat there and we'll Nice. You'll be you'll be going nationwide. No, not really. <laughs> but uh, but uh, no, it's uh, it's it's important for us to get informed feedback. You know, I think it's it's really good. And you guys are probably the, at the forefront of taste now. Most of you are passionate home brewers. So, um, you know, you're the guys that are probably the the key to it, really, uh, in terms of knowledge. And so, yeah, that's what we're um, that's what we're trying to get the feedback on. So uh, I hope you could kind of hear what Ron was saying there. We were out in the field on a rainy day, but uh, it's it's really remarkable what they're doing there in terms of developing hops, analyzing hops, and uh, coming up with new ideas for ways to use them. Oh my God, the hop syndrome thing has affected the Kiwis as well. <laughs> yeah, man, it's worldwide. <laughs> uh, and let me let me tell you, they are in love with their hops down there, and their hops are very different than our hops. Uh, but you know, you heard a little bit about that. If you have any more questions, write in, maybe I'll have answers. Maybe I'll know where to find them. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things I do like about, you know, sort of different growing regions, and this is for all sorts of ingredients is just that terroir, that, that difference in flavor and that difference in approach. So yeah, the, the New Zealanders definitely have some very interesting hops of their own. So it's kind of cool to see. Yeah. And I think maybe we mentioned it in the last episode, they took uh, cascade from the U S over there to grow and they ended up being so completely different, they had to give them a completely different name so that people didn't expect them to be anything like uh, what they think of as Cascade. So it's just another example of uh, terroir playing a huge, huge part in beer flavor. Well, hey, thank you. Thank you for the New Zealanders for bringing Denny down there and you know giving us some uh, extra fun to things to talk about. So there you go. If you get a chance to uh, make sure you uh, swing by New Zealand, uh, it's on the way to everywhere, right? <laughs> That's right, man. Uh, you know what? I am already trying to figure out how I can get back there sooner rather than later because it was one of the coolest places I've ever been. All right. Well, hey, it's time for us to close this show up. So uh, why don't we? Uh, why don't we do some things here? Yeah, let's take a quick break to wet our whistles, and when we come back, we'll wrap this baby up. All right, it's time for the final segment here. And uh, we're going to start off with a quick tip from Drew. Yep. So my quick tip is, uh, you remember back a couple of segments, I said that I had just racked all the beers that I had for the, you know, the whole crazy brew day thing that I did. Well, so here's what my quick tip is, because I lose beers sometimes or my beers aren't as good as they should be because I get lazy. Don't get lazy. 
stay Johnny on the spot. <laughs> and I know sometimes, sometimes at least if you're me and I'm, I'm about as you know focused as a squirrel on meth, uh, it, it's easy to lose the attention that you need. But uh, what I'm finding myself doing is I'm still living up to my brewer's resolution where I try and go into the brewery at least once a day. So that's helping. And I think um, my beers are de- definitely doing better. And it's actually keeping me more involved in the brewery and making me more excited to do more brew things. So there you go. Don't get lazy. Your beer suffers for it. I agree completely because I am extremely lazy and I can tell the beers that I brewed when I'm lazy and I can tell the beers that I brewed when I'm actually into it and paying attention. And it, it drives me to pay attention more. Uh, we'll see if it drives me enough. There you go. And in a reversal of our usual scheme, I gave the quick tip. Denny, that means it's time for you to have something other than beer. Yes. And my something other relates to cooking. Once again, big surprise, everybody. I may be a little bit behind the curve, but I recently acquired an instant pot. If you haven't seen one of these yet, uh, it's a combination pressure cooker, slow cooker. You can saute in it. You can do just pretty much a whole meal in one, in one unit. It's a rice cooker. It's, it's a rice cooker. Uh, Paula makes yogurt in ours. Um, that was, that was her main incentive for getting one. Um, and if you go over to the AHA discussion forum, you'll even find some guy who's figured out what temperatures various settings on it are so that he can use it for brewing. And that's, that's really wild. I just have a small one. Mine's three quarts, not really big enough to use for brewing, but man, Two of the coolest things I've found about it is that you can take dried beans and in an hour have perfectly cooked beans. It doesn't take soaking them overnight. doesn't take cooking them all day. And the latest discovery I made is you can throw frozen chicken right into it, eight minutes of pressure cooking, and you have perfectly cooked chicken. I'm, I'm so impressed. I love this thing. I've been using it uh, every couple days or so to make something. So uh, if you haven't gotten an instant pot already, check it out. I think that maybe you're going to want one. Uh, it's, it's a great little kitchen gadget. Yeah. And Amazon usually has deals on them from time to time. And, and yeah, I I've got mine and I think one of the biggest uses I've had for mine other than as a rice cooker is also, uh, and a slow cooker is that I've also been using it to pressure cook stocks. And yeah, that works like a charm and, oh, man. and pressure cook uh, short ribs, which is kind of like cheating, but it's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, it, it's, it's my first experience with a pressure cooker and I am hooked. Let me tell you. Yeah. And my favorite thing about it is, you know, since I don't have enough room in my kitchen for all the gadgets that I want to have and all the ingredients I want to have to me, it's great because yeah, it takes over the place of my rice cooker. It takes over my slow cooker and it takes over a pressure cooker. So three in one. Good. Yeah, right. And I didn't have those anyway. So, you know, I, I'm saving space from the beginning. There you go. All right. Well, hey, I think it's time to get out of here. I think it is, too. Thank you all for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. I hang out on a bunch of different beer forums, including the AHA discussion forum. You can find Drew on the uh, homebrewing subreddit or on the Slack homebrew channel. If you want to ask us a question or suggest topics or recipes or experiments or even just rant and rave, and believe me, we get a lot of that, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com 
or if you want to email each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And don't forget, you can always leave us a voicemail at 626-765-1ALE. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing.